Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Evolving Engineering and Construction Brands podcast with your host, Matthew Winkelstein. I'm always fascinated when I meet marketers that have served in different roles. Not that marketers that have and don't do a good job, but my experience has been that if a marketer has actually had to sell something, if they've been on the product side, if they've been on the execution side, they just have a more nuanced approach and they understand more about what goes into the business. And I feel like that just improves your marketing skills. Not that you can't get that in different ways. And I've seen fantastic marketers that don't have that experience. But when I meet someone that has that varied experience, I, I just lean in. I want to understand more. And so this week I had the pleasure of interviewing Misty Chiofi, who is with Baywa RE. She was a fantastic interview. She talks about how her experience in the renewables industry in the early days. She started out as a mechanical engineer. She didn't talk about it in the episode, but her parents are actually sales professionals, which is probably where she gets her great personality. And she was able to transition from mechanical engineer to product to sales. And now she runs marketing for Baywa RE. And she does a fantastic job. It was a great episode. Some good practical tips about how to work in legacy organizations, how to transition between different professions, how she utilizes social media in her personal and professional life. And she gives one of the best answers I've ever heard on do brands matter in the engineering and construction space. So without further ado, we'll kick it off with Misty. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did recording it. Misty, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Matt. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> Of course. So why don't you tell our listeners, where are you calling from? A little bit about your current role and your current company. My name is Misty Chiofi. I'm calling in today from Sonoida, Arizona, which is a very small town southeast of Tucson. So right here in the sunny part of the state. And I am working as the head of marketing for Bewa RE Americas. So I oversee marketing for all of our 10 businesses across North America. Awesome. So what you're telling me in a nice way is you have a lot of responsibility and you're extremely busy all the time. That is correct. Yes. <laughs> As we experienced earlier in the week, we were connected by our mutual connection, Tom, and he raved about some excellent marketers that he knew and you were one of them. And we had a pre-call and I was just fascinated with your story. And so I have the benefit of knowing that, but our audience doesn't. So can you briefly walk us through how you went from a mechanical engineer in the power market to a marketer in this space and what that journey was like? Sure. Happy to walk you through that. First of all, thanks to Tom Weirich for connecting us. He's a rock star and I'm very glad he made the connection. By his um, book. Buy his book. <laughs> yeah, buy the book. It's really good. So my background is actually in mechanical engineering. So I'm a weird marketer. I actually graduated from MIT with that degree in 2001. And pretty much I immediately moved into product design. So I was designing tents and backpacks and compasses for the outdoor industry and Loved it. And then after a couple of years, I found myself in a more serious engineering role at Sandia National Labs. I was a contractor there working on a very interesting project, which I don't think I can mention too much about. But um, basically, after a couple of years working at Sandia National Labs, I had a conversation with my boss and I was like, how do I get into management here? And he said, you're going to need a PhD in physics. And I said, well, that's not going to happen. He recommended that I look into an MBA program. 
And so I did that and I started an MBA program at UNM while I was working at Sandia. And through that program, I met some really interesting people. And one of my cohorts invited me out to a startup he was working at. And through that, I met some of the team and it turned out to be a renewable energy company, a solar startup that had actually spun out of Sandia. And I got invited to join the team, actually. It wasn't an interview. I just happened to meet them and hit it off with the VP of sales and marketing. And he invited me to come and lead their marketing program. Yeah, 17 years later, I'm still in renewable energy. And it's been a really fun ride transitioning from engineering and product design into hardcore marketing. (laughs) And if I remember correctly, you also had some sales experience in between there as well. Yeah, so in the renewable energy space, it's a very fast growing industry. You get the opportunity to wear a lot of different hats, depending on the stage of development that your organization might be at. So through the years and through different companies, I've worn many different hats. So I have been a business development manager. I've done market intelligence. I've also been a general manager, just a lot of different roles and positions through the years. But yeah, definitely had my fingers in sales. <laughs> One of the things I really enjoyed about our initial conversation, just talking to you and Tom is, so I grew up in the power generation space, but on the fossil side. So I worked for a company that did environmental controls. And so we were in the industry at the same time, but in completely different spaces. And you and Tom were in the renewables industry before it was popular, before people probably really believed it was going to be a thing. What were some of those early days? Like, I remember you told me a story about what it was like when China entered the solar market. Do you have any more cool stories like that? Oh, yeah. So I I think when I started in solar, the U.S. market was barely a thing. It was just very fledgling. And there's much older people who are much more pioneers than I am. But I definitely remember when we were selling solar at $5 a watt, and which is just insane. And before there was really a huge demand for it, even working in the United States, I was serving mostly customers in Europe because that's where the market was at that point. And yeah, it's been an interesting, crazy ride to see how the market's evolved. I mentioned to you earlier, the experience with the Chinese entering the market and how it just really shifted the entire landscape. I don't think anybody at the time saw it coming and it really disrupted the entire manufacturing supply chain, created so much turbulence in the market because it just flooded the market with supply. And yeah, as in any market that brings wild shifts in demand and pricing. And so Yeah, we call it the solar coaster for those not familiar with the market. But yeah, it's always interesting, always challenging in this industry. So is it safe to say that you're glad to be on the developer side rather than the product side now? That's an interesting question. I don't know that I prefer one side over the other, but they each have their own challenges. I think... For me, I've been in more of the downstream market for a few years now, and I find it fun and challenging. I I think the closer you are to the end customer is always more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Curious, not a lot of marketers have your experience. And I think that's probably what makes you a talented marketer and what makes you successful in your role. How does your technical background, your sales background, and your product background shape you as a marketer? Great question. I think that my technical background really helps me to understand the nuances of 
products and systems and how they actually are working and really allows me to better tell the story to maybe non-technical people, laymen, about what those products or services can do for them. And it's almost a role of translator, right? (laughs) Taking a really technical concept and translating that into something more people can understand. So I think that's my say one of my marketing superpowers, and it definitely comes from my engineering and science background. I think one other thing with training and engineering and going to school for that, it teaches you how to think, and that is critically important. So how to think, how to solve problems can be applied anywhere, really. And so I'm just applying the skill set that I have into the marketing discipline. Absolutely. And I would assume that when you're meeting with subject matter expert or product leads, you can do a little bit more of your own due diligence to understand what they're going to come with. And maybe they don't have to come as far to you to explain the product. There's certain technologies that I market or certain customers, and they have to come a pretty long way for me to understand what they're talking about. And sometimes I think that's an advantage because they dumb it down. But at the same time, I think if I could go a little bit further their direction, I would be able to get more fruitful content quicker. Do you find that to be true? Yeah, I think so. Everything is complex if you're not working directly with it, but definitely I can do my due diligence and get up to speed, I think, fairly quickly on more technical topics. At heart, I'm a nerd. Yeah, I like reading technical journals and things like that to to get to the meat of it. Baywa is an interesting company because they have a legacy company that is based overseas, right? Then they have this renewable portion of the company. So if you would explain a little bit of that, and then that will lead me to my next question about how do you grow digital marketing a legacy organization? Yeah. So Baywari is a global leader in renewable energy. We are operating 30 different countries around the world. We're doing project development, services, asset management, IP, and distribution of solar equipment in a lot of different markets. So we're a global leader. We have a great parent company, Baywa AG, that is headquartered in Munich. They have been around for 100 years. We're actually celebrating the 100-year anniversary this year, which is pretty exciting. But they have a deep background in agriculture and building materials and and energy. And obviously the people running this company have had great foresight and have taken a huge initiative to push the company towards renewable energy, seeing it coming and they've invested in it. And so it's really great to work for a nice, stable company that has vision towards the future. And so that that's really how I feel about Bewari. Do you want to dig into the digital side of that? <laughs> Yeah, because I was with a similar legacy organization that had a lot of success and there were there's pluses and minuses with everything in life, right? And so the positive is you have that stability, you have a brand awareness in areas where you may not have it in a startup, but some of the challenges are they've been successful previously doing things that isn't necessarily what a company that just started today would do to be successful. And so I'm interested with a company that has that rich history and that rich legacy. How do you get people to understand the importance of digital marketing, which is a newer form and a newer way to be able to communicate into the new markets that you serve? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you're making. So yeah, they have had a lot of success with traditional marketing and definitely want us to continue investing in that. But they also, like I said, they have a future mindset. So you, I don't think you stick around for a hundred years if you're not willing to try new things. 
<laughs> yeah. So, so I think in that regard, the organization is one of these older organizations that has that inertia, but they are willing to try new things. And I think they're open to seeing where technology can take us. And we have a huge drive internally around digital transformation and looking at how that can impact all areas of our business. The digital marketing side of things, like with all new things, I think it's approached somewhat cautiously and people have to build trust in it over time. So it's a matter of demonstrating that it works. And I think with digital marketing, fortunately, it is a lot easier to track ROI than let's say other traditional forms of marketing. It makes it easier for us marketers to demonstrate that, to build trust in it, and hopefully to allow us to keep pushing it forward and testing and proving it. I like what you said there, because especially when I work with young marketers that are in some of these legacy organizations that maybe don't have that nuanced approach that you have, it's, we should be doing this. I know I fall victim to that sometimes too. Hey, it's so obvious. We should be doubling down on digital marketing. And what you described there was a nuanced approach to being able to test things, prove their value, and then incrementally move in the right direction or in the direction that you think things are headed without breaking things that were working previously. Is that the best way that you would describe it? Yeah. And it's funny because in a way it ties back to the engineering roots. It's a scientific approach. You form a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis. If it works, we double our efforts in that direction. But yeah, we have an obligation to the business to prove that this stuff works, right? And so if there's not trust behind it, we have to prove it. And I think that's that would be my advice to marketers who are maybe meeting some resistance around investing in digital marketing is to find different ways to prove it and to build trust around it as a tool. Yes, it's okay to do trade shows and events. Just because they're analog doesn't mean they don't work, doesn't mean they don't have their value. If you're trying to move all of your marketing budget to 100% digital, you're probably making a mistake there too, even though the company needs to move towards a digital acquisition yeah. strategy. Everything in moderation, I think. <laughs> yeah. All or nothing doesn't tend to work very well, in my opinion. I think you do have to invest in a lot of different things. And yeah, I think COVID actually has just proven that there's a lot of value to live events and some of our traditional marketing. So you can't do all one or all the other. It's not a good recipe for success. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you, maybe you're in a different worlds and see things differently, but there was a brief moment in history where I thought that digital events were going to be the thing. And now I've just turned on my, someone invited me to an event and it's, I can't make it in person. I am not doing a six hour zoom thing. I really appreciate the invite, but it's just, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sit on zoom any more than I already, I enjoy the freedom that it provides me, and especially with a young family, the way I can talk with you on the West Coast, not have to fly out there. You fly here and we can do this great interview. But as far as a conference, you know, I enjoy going to conferences and meeting with people and shaking hands and seeing their smile and maybe having a cocktail or a coffee after and having a good time, not just sitting behind the computer screen. Yeah, pros and cons for each different type of interaction that we can have. I'm a full-time remote employee and I have been for most of my career, well before COVID happened. I fully see the benefit of all of these digital technologies that enable us to do these things remotely and from very far distances. But yeah, there's a huge value in meeting in person and having those face-to-face -face connections. You just can't replace it. And I think 
One of my favorite recent examples of people maybe thinking that was going to happen and it not is, is Meta's like the way they went all in and <laughs> in that direction and suddenly very quietly reverse course, right? Yes. It's funny too, because I was remote before COVID and I definitely don't want to go back to the way things were before. I can remember I was in business development and to me, that was the best mix of both worlds where I was getting to see people on a weekly basis in person, have these meetings, but then also being able to work from my house and do the deep work I needed to be able to do around the customer engagements. But I can remember having a specific customer that was in Detroit and we were trying to negotiate a deal at Detroit three and a half hours prior to get to downtown Detroit from my house. And I drove to Detroit, no lie, seven times in two months. It was like once or twice a week, we had to have a meeting. And if we had the meeting, they would do a meeting, but they would do a conference call or they would do something like a team's meeting, but they wouldn't turn their cameras on. Then you're negotiating a deal. And first of all, they treated you differently when you weren't there in person. And you're like, this isn't as effective. So I had to drive back and forth. And I can remember trying to set up these meetings Teams meet. I don't remember if Teams was exactly around them, but trying to set up these Teams meetings and just saying, "Hey, why don't you? Why don't we just do this remote?" And they're like, "Oh, we'll just do a conference call." So no one's paying attention to these conference calls. There's like 20 people on there, and no one's doing it. And no one would turn their cameras on. And then COVID happened, and it became much more acceptable. And it's okay now. We can have a meaningful dialogue and look at each other face to face. And good, we can do this. So I definitely don't want to go back, but I do not want to go back to COVID either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things positive that COVID gave us was more people having the skill set to work remotely and definitely the technologies improved. As somebody who's been video conferencing since 2006, this is way better than it used to be. And yeah, and people know how to actually form connections remotely and how to build trust remotely too. So th these are huge improvements that we should be grateful to have and hopefully figure out the way of working going forward. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's so crazy to me because I worked remote in 2010 out of my house in Sacramento, California, and the office was based in Ohio and mm -hmm. no one there were, I was on zero actual meetings like this. They were all just conference. It's just dial in. And it was just sitting there staring at your phone. It was like, <laughs> this is not that great. And that was like what my life was like. I enjoyed the balance that it gave me, especially traveling a lot, but I didn't enjoy the experience as much as when yeah. meetings like this started. So when I hear that you were doing that in 2006, I'm like, what the hell? Why couldn't we even do that in 2010? <laughs> a lot of people didn't have the technology. So I started working for a Norwegian solar manufacturer called REC Group, and they were headquartered out of Oslo. And we were very fortunate that the leadership who had come into the company had actually come from another company that was a video conference company. Mm -hmm. So they had very advanced video conferencing terminals. They sent me one to my house in California and I had this video conference system separate from my computer that I would use to video conference with the team in Oslo on a regular basis. And so I had very specialized equipment. My laptop couldn't have done that back then, but it, yeah, I'm so glad the technology continues to evolve and improve and allow for more of this remote connection. <laughs> yeah. Now, how many times do you see, at least I'm, I assume I'm not the only one, people calling it from their cell phones. It's man, I could, oh, yeah. could not have Definitely. mentioned that in 2010 either. <laughs> the world goes round and round. All right. We could talk about video conferencing and past work experience and probably some trauma that we felt through video conference calls, but let's move on to, 
how do you utilize social media for your professional, your personal professional life first? Yeah, so I would say I'm mostly on one platform personally, and that's LinkedIn. I find that to be a great platform. And that's also where my industry tends to hang out. I'm on LinkedIn really to keep up with industry trends, to see what my network is doing, to network with new people. And I find that to be a really nice platform. I think I've dabbled in Twitter in the past. I'm not so keen on it these days for multiple reasons. We won't go into that. But yeah, I think LinkedIn's a great professional networking platform and I tend to utilize that the most. I couldn't agree more. I challenge people sometimes when they talk about how they don't like whatever social media they're using. And it's it's algorithmic driven. If you don't like something, if you, especially as a marketer, I'm sure you experience this. When you're doing research on a specific subject, your newsfeed can change within a matter of days. And it's, wait a second, I've actually thought about creating a different LinkedIn profile because when I do research, it changes so much. And I'm like, wait, I want my old newsfeed back. I want to see some of these people's connections and what's going on with them. But it just changed. I tell people I'm probably every episode, but if you don't like your newsfeed, if you don't like what you're seeing, unfollow people, like more things that you actually like, and then it will start to feed you that. And it can be a more positive experience. Not that social media doesn't still have its drawbacks, but it doesn't have to be this cesspool of political bantering and everything else that social media can turn into sometimes. Yeah, I've gotten off a lot of the other platforms for the most part because, yeah, it does devolve and you have to fight the algorithm. And the question is whether or not it's worth doing that. Yeah. Uh, in a lot of ways, I've just decided to spend my time in other places in my life and I'm quite happy with that decision. So. I, I understand. I'm a late to Instagram user. And so my Instagram is like gardening motivation stuff. I get, people don't know that actually personally know me that I have an Instagram kind of with very few people that I actually know. And I was telling mm -hmm. some of, I love Instagram. And they're like, really? Mine's like baby pictures and this and that. And this. I'm like, oh no, I'm not connected with hardly anyone that I actually know. It's gardening, <laughs> EDM quite, music, quite snowboarding. Like, yes, I love it. Yeah, I, I got off Facebook and I would move to Instagram and I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, sure. If you're listening to this, do not connect with me. <laughs> personal interests. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. So how do you use social media for Baywa RE? Yeah. So we are heavily on LinkedIn as well for the company. That's actually the platform where we are connecting with most of our customers and most of our industry. I think we do very well there again, because that's where our industry is at. It, I think you have to be where your customer is on social media. And so it's a matter of knowing who your target audiences are, thinking through how they're using the platform and then trying to be present in a way that's meaningful and useful for them on those platforms. So LinkedIn is mostly for, I would say, our project development and upstream kind of B2B facing markets. And then we have a group of solar distribution companies and they're also on Facebook. Some of them are dabbling in Instagram and they're there because their customers are there and using those platforms. So we utilize LinkedIn for our customers in a couple of ways, obviously their company page, but the most effective way that we found is to put up thought leaders where it's people that work for the company and putting a face to the company and then either helping them or ghostwriting content on their behalf and then serving it, measuring it, and then putting messaging out that way. Have you experimented with that all yet? Or are you mostly focused on the company pages? I think we are starting our employee advocacy program right now, and we're 
looking at how we can leverage our thought leaders more on social media. So we're starting down that path. I would say our typical pages, it's a broad mix of what we're putting out there because it is a pretty big audience out there. So you've got to address not only customers, but you're also talking to a talent pool, especially on LinkedIn. You're talking to broader society. So we talk about sustainability, environmental impacts, and we have to address all of those groups. So we cover a broad range of topics on our social channels. And yeah, it's a challenge, I would say, to continuously and consistently hit all of those different pillars that we need to hit for social. Absolutely. And I'd imagine it's tough to keep people's attention when you have to kind of service. That's why I like the thought leadership idea so much, because it's people that are connecting with the people that they actually work with, or if it's from a talent attraction standpoint, people that might want to work for them. And then you're communicating directly through that thought leader. And so you can really be pointed, even if you're in a large company that focuses on 15 different markets, you can really segment down into that specific market through that thought leader. And then as long as they do their part and continue to make connections and continue to put themselves out there, I think that's a good way to be able to cut through that. I haven't figured out how to really leverage a company page well yet. So if you have some good tips for that, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> we have lots of ideas and it goes back to experimentation, right? Like yeah. you, you just have to keep trying things and see what's going to work for you. And yeah, I think we're ramping some of our paid social um, campaigns and yeah, hope, hoping to get some interesting results out of that, that we can use to do even more. <laughs> awesome. So we'll have to bookmark this and have you back here in six months and hear how that went. So you can teach us how to use a company page. Well, we've used it successfully from a paid advertisement standpoint to generate awareness mm -hmm. and then drive people into a larger funnel or even drive them to a thought leader. But inevitably we end up struggling with what you described earlier, where you're serving so many different masters. And then also we found it, it's more difficult to get people to engage with that content or to care about that content versus when it's coming from an individual person. We'll have to check back in six months and hear how your paid ventures went. And if you have also pick your brain for, if you figured out how to solve this problem, because I think if you can, um, you definitely should pay it forward to us marketers and all the other marketers that are listening to this that are trying to figure out how the heck to utilize it. I think it's also a matter of having realistic expectations for what you're going to get out of it too, right? So it's not going to solve all of your problems. It's not going to be all of your brand awareness. This goes back to, you can't just do one thing, right? You yep. have to be doing a little bit of everything and having realistic expectations for what you're going to get out of one platform is key. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fair. Thanks for level setting me there. All right. So we're going to get into the last couple of questions here. Before I ask you what your best routine or habit is, how important do you think brands are in the engineering construction space and more specifically in the renewable space? Oh, this is such a good question. I think it's really interesting that we even have to ask this. <laughs> I think brands are critically important. And I think that they really matter to customers, whether you're a B2C business, which is where people, I think, tend to expect brands to matter. But B2B businesses also have, I think, proven that brands matter, right? So B2B businesses, I would say there's definitely studies and I'd have to go back and look at the source for this information, but brand is still one of the top three decision drivers on purchases for B2B businesses. And most engineering construction companies are B2B, right? And yep. this should be a major consideration for any company operating in that space to develop their brand. It is really important 
to facilitate conversations, to help the sales process. And I think it goes back to what the core of a brand is. And if maybe you don't understand that, maybe you don't see the importance of it. But I did a lot of work in brand development for one of my previous companies. And part of that work was really interesting. They surveyed the whole company and asked, what's your definition of brand? And I think my favorite answer that came out of that was a brand is a promise. A brand is the promise to the customer and to the market about what you as a company are going to deliver. And if you think about a brand in that way, it is going to help you in your entire business, not just in sales and marketing, right? Because then the company is striving to deliver that promise that brand is making. And ultimately that's going to open doors for people. That's going to make the sales process easier. It's going to create trust and loyalty. And so it's critically important. So not only for B2C businesses, but for B2B businesses, people need to be investing in building their brands and, and making sure that it permeates the whole company. It's not just a marketing issue. Yes. I love that. I've never heard that before. The promise. I appreciate that. And you also mentioned helping the sales process. And I think today, a lot of people are faced with the decision fatigue, right? And so if you can make that promise to the market, which that was so well articulated and then deliver on, that's a handful of less questions that customers have to ask. And the more they can figure out how you can specifically help them. I think that's a fantastic way to look at it. I have never heard it communicated that way. I'm going to probably steal that since that's what marketers do is steal great lines like that. So thank you so much. Feel free. I think the more people that know it, the better. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So you've been successful in numerous roles from engineer to sales to marketer. So why don't you end us with what's your best routine or habit? Right now, at this point in my life, I would say that I would recommend waking up early and getting a good night's sleep. So I am naturally more of a night owl, but my husband is, he's essentially a farmer, like he wakes up at 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> And so I have learned from his practice over the years and I'm slowly adopting it myself, but getting up early, you just have the opportunity to do so many things in the day. This is not an original concept, by the way, I should, I should No, it's it. okay. I am late to this party, but yeah, you really do get so much done if you can get up early and start the day productively, whether you've got meetings at 6am, like I often do, or you're having a cup of coffee and watching the sunrise, it just is a great way to start the day. You're more productive. You accomplish more than most people do in a day. If you can just add those extra hours at the top of the day. Yes, I'm I couldn't agree more. And I'm I've spent some time in Arizona. So I'm picturing the sunrise in Arizona with a cup of coffee and not quite the same as when the sun rises in Northeast Ohio. But uh, yeah, I love that. I love that advice. Do you have any tips or tricks that you've used to be able to get to bed consistently? Or it's if you're waking up early and you need a good night's sleep, it's like I wake up at five. And so I'm trying to be in bed by nine. Doesn't yeah. always quite happen. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing works 100% of the time. I think that if you are waking up early, you want to go to bed early. You're not really down for staying up super late because you're tired, right? So if yeah. you wake up early, you're going to more naturally be going to bed early. I also really like my Apple Watch sleep reminder. <laughs> 
Mm. And I do actually pay attention to it. So when my watch pings, time for bed, I'm like, okay, it's time to start moving in that direction. It is a helpful little reminder that I rely on. (laughs) I love that discipline. Love that discipline. Missy, thank you so much wisdom in here from a marketing standpoint and also from a sleep and waking up early standpoint. (laughs) Get that quiet time. Get that focus time. Have that cup of coffee with the sun. I love it. Thank you so much. Hugely valuable. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure. Thank <laughs> you.